0: Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today I'm very fortunate to be sitting here, albeit digitally, with a self-confessed hypnosis geek. As well as working as a full-time hypnotherapist and running one of the UK's busiest hypnotherapy training schools, he also finds time to host his own weekly podcast, as a leading voice and proponent of evidence based hypnotherapy, he often has a differing view from others in the profession, but no doubt his work and efforts are certainly helping the traditional medical establishments to sit up and take more note of this hypnosis stuff. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Adam Eason. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. Yay, go me. <laughs> Absolutely. So Adam, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you here, but I thought maybe we could kick off and uh, yeah. really very simply, t- tell me a little about yourself, what you do, how you got started.
1: Um, I originally became involved in this field because um, as as so many people do when they come to caring professions and therapeutic professions, um, I had a number of Uh, psychological and physiological health issues that were helped as a result during my university years um, were helped uh, with with the use of hypnotherapy and um, as a result I went on when I finished university I worked I worked for one year of my life. I was employed um, after I finished university, which funded my study as a hypnotherapist. Um, I became a hypnotherapist then, back in the late 1990s, and, um, and set up in business. And, uh, and I have been working as a hypnotherapist ever since. I see, I see less one-to-one clients today, although I still do so. Because my my training college, our online business, and and other projects that I'm involved in, also consume uh, quite a lot of my time. Um, but that's uh, you know, in as much of a nutshell, that's where I am today. You know, the the I, I started teaching. Um, probably my first love within this field, which is self hypnosis, also back in the late 1990s. After I'd been up, uh, uh, after I'd been sort of working as a hypnotherapist for a couple of years, and um, in the early 2000s, set up my college offering uh, hypnotherapy practitioner diplomas and and a wide range of other uh, specialist and advanced hypnotherapy trainings. And yeah, that's that's sort of where we're at today.
0: And how would you say your views of hypnosis has changed since you've been doing it? Well, um, I was taught,
1: um, I was taught, you know, by by a very, very lovely man. Um, Yet the the model I was taught as far as hypnosis is concerned and the one that I utilised and used in my own therapeutic work for the first few years of my career was one that, you know, I I choose to distance myself from greatly today. So I think, you know, um, I I originally worked and held the belief that hypnosis was an altered state of consciousness, a unique, special, magical, wondrous state. And um, it was a way of communicating with the all wise, benevolent, unconscious mind that resides within us and it would hypnotize people and very often take them back to relive painful experiences and memories and access their unconscious mind, give them, uh, give them suggestions that would make them better when they awoke and hallelujah, lightning bolts up the <laughs> arse and things like that. And, um, and so, so invested in this particular model was I, that my first book was written, um, you know, adhering to, to that particular model. Um, I'm still to this day, it's my best selling book um rights have been sold for that book in places as diverse and obscure as north korea um and and yet it is uh, even though i'm incredibly proud that it was a, a book that was published in my name and that i that i sat down and committed to writing the the central tenets of it are something that i, I tend to shun and um uh, you know i'm very averse to today so my journey meant that um you know, funnily enough, when that particular book was published, uh, I recall somebody getting in touch with me and saying to me, Have you ever checked out this particular quote? or Have you ever checked out this particular thing um, with reference to the, the model of the unconscious mind? And I was like, No, I haven't. And I went and had a look, and, and, and I was hurt. By all of these things that I was reading you know the the philosopher and psychologist of the late 1890s referred to the subconscious mind as to, as, as the potential for turning a credible field into a tumbling ground for whimsies mm-hmm. and you, you know and, and the more I explored it the more I started to to seek evidence for its actual existence the more vapid it seemed and the more you know the more lost I felt and the more insecure I felt about everything that I was doing so I wanted to seek out what was there and what was occurring and and start to examine it um the neuroscience perspective has changed massively in the last 15 years but even the neuroscience perspective of that time you know which 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 was about after I've been in business for about five years so about 15 years ago and um and I also did some trainings with some people that had a, had a dramatic impact upon my life um Donald Robertson in particular he's now based in Canada you know a huge loss to us here in England in my opinion but um Donald Robertson in particular um a really staunch advocate of both evidence based approaches the, the the examining the the inherent principles in the original work of hypnosis by James Braid, but also the development of a cognitive behavioral approach to hypnosis, hypnotherapy and, and its, its parallels with the socio-cognitive perspective. And these were things that just lit me up that mm-hmm. just um, um, really, really changed my, the way in which I perceived the field, the way in which I conceptualized hypnosis not just for my own understanding and my own benefit, but also for the benefit of my clients, you know, no longer was it a tangible notion of a, a trance state, um, which, which is forever being compared, you know, I'd, I'd be teaching people and some people would be saying, Whoa, man, I was well out of it. That was a voyage to trip out city. I was on there. And then someone sitting a couple of chairs down would be saying, ah, I didn't have that. It's clearly not working for me. And would start talking themselves out of it, you know, because they didn't have the same experience, this sort of non-tangible notion of, of depth and, you know, that somehow being zonked out, thinking strange things and dribbling down yourself was somehow correlated to depth of trance or something like that. Mm. And, and, you know, so, so I got, we, we got to abandon that, which was so refreshing. It was so lovely we've got to abandon that and we you know we've got to start to recognize that actually depth is a misnomer it's very misleading that actually hypnosis is more of a skill it's it's you know adopting a set of ordinary psychological attitudes expectancies and that actually the evidence would suggest that you can become better at it by practicing it as a skill and you know you can become better at it without the need for having a hypnotist present all of the time. And what's more, that that rather than um, attributing the benefits of hypnosis to some non-tangible external force, such as an unconscious mind, we begin to attribute it to ourselves. We begin to do wonderfully, evidence-based, beautiful things like advance self-efficacy. Whereby individuals start to become more confident in what they do and thus begin to actualize those things that they're attempting to do with that growing confidence. So they become better therapeutic subjects as a result. So, you know, my, the, central, the central processes as far as my own development. Of the the beginning of my career, when you know I have no idea how I managed to hatch it, any kind of a career together whatsoever, and mm-hmm. um, based upon the way in which I was delivering it, you know, um, and the way in which I was doing it, yet, um, I, and the way in which it's moved has been very much to a non-state perspective, you know, that actually hypnosis is something it's it's a, you know a, a combination of very ordinary psychological processes. It's a skill. It's a, a cognitive mindset, if you like, a positive cognitive mindset that develops and builds self-efficacy and amplifies experience and so much more besides. And, you know, a lot of people don't like that. They don't like hearing that because I'm somehow whipping away the magic. You know, how dare you do this? You know, like, <laughs> I, I, I can't wear my scarlet, deep red cape anymore um um thanks to you making it all so goddamn ordinary and um you know th- th- my point and that one of the things that, that again i find so utterly beautiful is that by underselling it you start to over deliver on results and instead of positioning it and offering it as being magic instead you position it and offer it as being ordinary and grounded and sober And you let the results become the magic and you let the outcomes and the fact that you're equipping people with empowering life skills, you let that become the magic. And I would say that that's probably been the central part of my own journey over the past 20 years in this field. There are There are components <clears throat> in there that I, that I could go into mm. in, into a lot more depth, but heck we have limited time here absolutely, right? but, but you know I mean things like depth and stuff and um, you know it, it's subjective experience, and how on earth do you measure that and you 're not actually going deeper you know and, and, mm. and there's, there's no scientific consensus or or acknowledgement that somehow depth is correlated to efficacy of outcomes you know um, or efficacy of treatment rather you know um and and yet you know also if you look at all the prominent academics and scholars and researchers of this field ever since James Braid coined the term, you know, so from the 1800s to the early 1900s, all the prominent academics such as, you know, Emil Coué, such as Hippolyte Bernheim, such as Andrew Salter, such as Clark Hull, such as Theodore Barber, who was prolific, you know, all the way up to Irving Kirsch, the theory wars of the 70s um, and so on none of them even doff their cap to the notion of an unconscious
0: mind, you know. It Mm -hmm. it just doesn't even
1: get mentioned, let alone refuted. It's just a non-issue as far as they are concerned.
0: But I think there's a couple of things that you touched on, which I I find very interesting on a personal note, Uh, one of which is that, you know, you you had written a book uh, with a a kind of a diametrically opposed view, and the fact that you can... Almost have whether whether we call it a one eighty degree turn is interesting to me because a lot of people I find, you know, especially when they become very invested in an idea, um, yeah. struggle to turn round. Even in spite of other evidence, they will manipulate or think about or, or reconstruct the world to suit their current belief. And I actually think it's 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 quite amazing, um, and I'd love to know more about what was it? Was it just? You know, you had, as you mentioned, a growing kind of feeling of insecurity that, you know, is, is, is this it or is there well, you more know, to it? Or what was it that let you go? Do you know what? Maybe this strong belief I have about all this stuff is I need to look elsewhere.
1: The field of hypnosis, the field of hypnotherapy is is rife with people, you know, that they invest money and loyalty and they, they invest belief in their original training and so much of people's original training in this field is, is incredibly flawed. It pains me to say so because there are some of the most wonderful people in this field. Um, a, a few weeks ago um, I, I shared a, 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 a quote by Isaac Asimov. On on my college Facebook page. And it was referring to a culture, a strain of anti intellectualism that um, Isaac Asimov said was a a constant thread winding its way through political and cultural life. And it was nurtured by this false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. (laughs) And the, the reason that I mention this is because I think this is a mentality that is rife in the field of hypnosis. And that people do get entrenched in dogma, they become so loyal with regards to it. Now, national occupational standards here in the u k show that at the very least you ought to be doffing your cap to reflective practice. My own training believes that that you understand a depth with regards to reflective practice, and that is that you know you understand you know basic fundamental stuff such as Kolb's cycle of experiential learning so that you understand the very essence of what reflective practice is and that is that you be objective you know you be self-aware enough to recognize your own confirmation bias and you reflect upon the work that you do in therapy you know it's a basic a basic tenet of any hypnotherapist's business and raison d'etre that they carry on professionally developing and, you know, I, I, I'd sort of paid lip service to that in the initial parts of my career. Mm. But, you know, I turned round and thought, you know, this is going to be a very bitter pill to swallow. You know, I've written a book on a particular subject, uh, but now I feel wholly disingenuous based upon that. Um, and, and I sought solace in the notion that... Um, that, that 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 this was this was me developing, this was me growing and and becoming better and being able to shed and and even be a good example, of of these things that I teach, these these central components of of what it is to to be an effective therapist, and you know being able to reflect objectively upon what you do and how you do it, you know, and surely to me it became a matter of responsibility as well, you know. I choose not to do stuff like past life regression. I mean, heck, I don't even do regression because of because you know of what the science suggests with regards to it these days. Um, and the reason being is that I'm not comfortable taking somebody's money if I don't believe in it. Now, because I don't think that individual is going to get a genuine felt service from me. And I think that, that they're better off going and being served by somebody who wholly believes in that. So I'll, I'll refer them if they're absolutely insistent. That's the direction they wish to go in therapeutically. And, you know, and, and I was just the same in my mindset with regards to, you know, the notion of the unconscious mind, the notion of hypnosis being a state and so on. And and that's where I was at. Um, and, you know, still today, I encounter a lot of people that, that refuse, refuse blind refuse to adopt anything else you know there's a there's a lot of forums out there in the world that um you know you go and ask questions you go and ask and seek evidence um you know you you and you go against the grain of these things that are that are sort of they end up being churned out, the same ideas rehashed and churned out by generation of generation of, of recent and modern uh, training schools and establishments. Um, and, you know, that makes me a bit sad. Mm. One of the things, you know, on my own podcast we've managed to to, to really do is um, is to say, okay, you know, you and I have differing perspectives and differing viewpoints, but heck... We'd go for a beer afterwards, right? Um, you know, we'd be friends rather than needing to to, to have problems um, or rather than suddenly, you know, casting doubt or, or having to use logical fallacy to, to put someone down or, or be anti about them or something because they don't hold the same beliefs as you.
0: I think it's interesting that um, you mentioned, um, you used the phrase going against the grain. W- would you say that certainly within the, the- the hypnosis world you're someone that's seen as going against the grain
1: well i would say that um front hypnotherapy absolutely um i would say that really good quality evidence-based um, applications mm. and understanding of hypnosis um is not taught by the vast majority of training schools and colleges you know because heck that would involve people having to read that would involve you know uh, teachers having to actually examine the subject, and the vast majority of them you know you mention some of the most prolific important researchers and scholars that have contributed to this field they don 't even know who they are mm. you know they give you a squinty look and um, um, so it, you know it, it's that kind of stuff that I tend to think um, is a bit disappointing you know um, I, I, there's definitely a shift there's definitely a shift as far as I'm concerned yet you know, there is also a chasm that exists between frontline hypnotherapy and academia, you know. Mm. Um, I encounter and cross paths with and exchange papers with some really awesome academics and scholars around the world as part of my own ongoing PhD study. My own PhD supervisor is Dr. Ben Paris, who has made some of the biggest contributions to the notion of inhibition of the Stroop effect using hypnosis really important for the understanding of cognitive neuroscience cognitive psychology and also understanding hypnosis for Mm. example and you know what a lot of his professional academic peers you know will will not will not touch frontline hypnotherapists with a barge pole um And in fact, you know, I hear many, many stories where they where they felt embarrassed being at, you know, speaking at at events where presidents and directors of some of the biggest hypnotherapy associations are still supporting pseudoscientific explanations of hypnosis, still, you know, really languishing in 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 antiquated themes, as far as hypnosis is concerned, um, and so this this chasm, this gulf that exists between academia and frontline hypnotherapy mm-hmm. gets perpetuated because you know very few are prepared to to give to give to the other side, and uh, I, I, you know I think for me it's it's become it's become not just a market uh, you know, for my business, it's become something that I feel strongly about and want to, and want to bridge and to make it part of, part of my work, part of my calling, part of my art to, to somehow, um, continue to educate and make some small inroads and impact upon the field. Accordingly.
0: I mean, I, I think it's really interesting. Um, especially if we talk about frontline hypnotherapy, uh, as we call it, um, that traditionally, you know, if someone, someone went against what uh, science uh, and evidence suggests, then they would be accused of going against the grain. Yeah. And actually, interestingly enough here, there's kind of a reverse, which is um, evidence doesn't support a lot of stuff that frontline hypnotherapists are doing. Yet if you, if you don't follow their line, then you could be accused of going against the grain, which is kind of a, yeah. weird, a weird irony.
1: Yeah, the world is still flat. According to yep. you know a, a lot of frontline hypnotherapy um, um, in my experience, and you know it's certainly one of the reasons that I, I I have less I have I spend less time on 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 a lot of hypnosis forums out there and um, public forums. You know we have our own for that reason because um, you know people with with an inability to to argue their their salient points and make them in friendly proper um and have proper discussions end up saying you know oh all that science that you talk about adam you're a dick uh, and that's their argument you, you know you know that they'll, they'll they'll divert you know they'll just digress into being rude sniping um and 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 that's it that's that's the sort of scope Mm-hmm. That they're able to apply to. I mean, I'm exaggerating. So it's a it's but, a well formed argument, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a well formed. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating because that's that's my bent. That's that's you know very often the way in which I teach and, and mm-hmm. give examples of things. But you know, hopefully, hopefully you get the point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, just sort of moving on, on a on a side note or moving uh, across. Um, I come across a lot of people, uh, certainly in my own practice, who I think have maybe. Uh, unrealistic ideas of what change is and how you go about change I still see a lot of people who you know they ring me and they say well you know I've had this problem for 50 years so you know surely it's going to take 50 years to get over this thing Um, or that, that they imagine you know that I've got a little goatee beard which by the way I shaved off a long time ago uh, and that they have to lie on a couch and talk about you know their problems uh, or relive traumas and I was just wondering you know what are the things that that you've come across that people come to perhaps misnomers about how change works and um, how do you go about sort of re-educating them? Um, Well you know I
1: I think I think it's always interesting to know I mean so for example, I encounter a lot of people that say um, you, you don't need to re educate, that actually whatever they bring, whatever framework the client brings to the therapy room, you should just ride into town on that. Hmm. Yet 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 the, the evidence does tend to suggest that, you know, and, and so so for for example as well, a lot of critics of, of sort of academia in this field or a lot of critics of of evidence-based um, adherence um, tend to glibly suggest that you know a lot of the terms I've spoken about a lot of the issues I've spoken about are just academic and don't have any place in in real life and real life therapy yet the evidence would suggest to the contrary the evidence would suggest that when a client has a proper and correct you know Understanding that they have a solid underpinning rationale that meets um, congruently with with that of 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 the therapist they're working with, then the results are likely to be greater. Um, also, you know, a, a number of notions such as trance, for example, the no, the very notion of trance, um, you know, studies by Irving Kirsch in particular have tended to suggest that this is very misleading, and that that people end up. Um, with, with, with a very, very different type of experience and even concerns about the therapeutic process as a result of it being referred to in those terms. However, you know, basic, the basic notion of psychoeducation and how you frame what you do with your clients is, is you know, a, a very central part. Um, so for me... Um, my my assessment process is also combined and heavily punctuated with socialization of the model. The way in which I would socialize clients to to the model of mind and the model of hypnosis would be very similar to the way in which I would socialize them and conceptualize their own problem, you know, show them that hypnosis works in, in a very similar way to their own problems being perpetuated Mm -hmm. um like the notion of negative self-hypnosis for example negative or or, or automatic thoughts and so educating the client explaining it but you know socializing the client to to the the, my particular model um of hypnosis is also something whereby we, we do that with hypnotic skills training um you know teaching the client you know doing um, hypnotic phenomena exercises and then handing it over to the client uh, with self-hypnosis and asking them to go and practice it and you know that they, they become much more socialized to the model as a result and 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 that again they are experientially learning about that way of 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 hypnosis occurring and they become educated through experience as well as the stuff that you're talking to them about
0: mm. and one of the things that 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 you touched on earlier and it's coming out again is this idea of encouraging people to be active actively engaged in the process rather than it being uh, i'm wiggling my fingers at you and now you're better
1: yeah you know it's collaborative it's collaborative you, you know i mean i'm, I'm I, I won't let anybody come to come to work with me um until they've signed to say that they understand that they are an active agent in this process that it's collaborative and mm-hmm. that you know success within this treatment depends equally upon their attitude open mindedness and application than it is of anything i can do you know so many hypnotherapists that i encounter are burdened By the expectation that somehow they are wholly responsible for their client's welfare and well-being, you know, I can't imagine having to carry that around with me all the time. You know, I'm responsible for all these people getting better. You know, that that's some big responsibility to carry around. You know, you need to share that. The client needs to be equally involved. And again, you know, I I refer back. You know, excuse me, sounding like a broken record, but the, the wonderful thing. With regards to this is that, you know, by sharing responsibility, you also begin to build self efficacy. And that's what you want. Self efficacy where the client feels, you know what, I can do this. I am doing this. I'm skilled. I'm equipped to, to be in control of my thoughts, my behavior, my emotions and everything else.
0: I, I hope, Adam, you're not suggesting that if you wanted to be a, a, a good therapist, a good hypnotherapist, we don't have to wear bangly earrings.
1: Well, probably not those those that know me you know um will probably say that yeah you know my 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 chakras get a bit twisted from time to time and my my aura is is unaligned uh, especially when i'm not wearing my tie-dye clothing and you know but i'm probably being very uncharitable to to people that that are of that ilk Mm. you know my job is not to say that something is wrong or something is is correct for example um um what What I tend to adhere to is something I think is is the most responsible stance to take for the kind of clients that I work with. I would also hasten to add that um, um, this kind of approach, I think, develops credibility, which is very, very healthy for one's career in this field.
0: Do you think, um, I mean, there is a lack of regulation within the industry and that that doesn't do... uh, the industry any favours in terms of being accepted by uh, the medical establishments and perhaps is there an argument that because of the lack of regulation there's a particular type of uh, profile of person who's maybe attracted to uh, becoming a hypnotherapist you know perhaps they are attracted to the more magical mystical side or misnomers around it
1: well the problem is that um, you know that there are potentially a number of issues a swell with regards to uh, with regards to too heavy a regulation you know what what that would mean for the field and what that would mean for for for, so I mean heck um I've watched a lot of uh, a lot of very well known academics even suggest that hypnosis should not be used um by anybody uh who isn't trained in other areas so when, when I say that I mean um you know psychologists can use it as an adjunct the, the, really it should be used as an adjunct as a standalone treatment mm. um, and doctors could use it you know dentists and so on which which sort of renders the field of hypnotherapy um fairly redundant you know so so a lot of people get get a bit uppity about that but with regards to um you know i mean i've lectured to nhs directors uh, who, who have said a lot of very very similar things that because of the proliferation of nonsense and pseudoscience and myth and misconception, it's very difficult for them. And, you know, the very popular media representation of, of hypnosis is, is, is a double-edged sword because, um, you know, in, in one respect, it's making people think that it's something it isn't. Yet, on the other hand, it does provide a framework for people to, to think of it as, as being powerful. Um, you know i would prefer i would prefer you know hypnosis to be to be something that has uh better levels of uh of of regulation but how that how that happens without damaging the careers of people existing in the field is is something that i have no answers to
0: hmm. yeah it's um certainly poses many many challenges I was wondering whether you could share with people and and listeners, you know, a couple of examples of of people that have experienced quite profound, rapid shifts.
1: Sure. I mean, um, I worked with a lady who had a lump, a non-malignant lump in the top of her breast. And um, it was causing her pain and discomfort and it looked quite peculiar. And she had she had had problems with conventional analgesia and anesthesia in the past they were going to be experimenting with different things and asked if I would examine and explore the possibilities of using hypnosis for her and uh, was given permission to come and be in the hospital with the lady and um, uh, and and she had this entire lump in the top of her breast removed um, without without any any anesthesia whatsoever so um you know she she was being pulled and tugged around she could feel that she was very aware of that and she she worked with me for about eight eight weeks Hmm. um for in order for that to happen and you know i think eight hours in my company with home practice is is rapid as far as i'm concerned um uh, you know as I said to you when we when we were discussing me coming and speaking together, mm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm potentially just a, a little bit averse to this idea that stuff has to be instant. Mm. Um, um, you know, so when, when we talked about rapid originally, you know, for me, I think, you know, four to six sessions, for example, which is typically the amount of times that James Braid would see his clients for four to six sessions is rapid and is brief. In contrast to you know the sort of average number of sessions that Freud had, you know, thirteen hundred, um, you know, which is a bloody brilliant business model. Well done, Sigmund. Um, yet you know, um, um, so, so 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 I definitely think hypnosis and hypnotherapy are uh, in and of itself are are, are brief and rapid therapies. Um, that's that's one. Th- so that particular lady is something that that immediately comes to mind mm. and you know i've worked with you know for me i just find the pain pain relief to be staggering um i worked with a little boy who was having a bone marrow aspiration now i don't know if you know anything about bone marrow aspirations or uh or or, or such things as lumbar punctures you know pediatric mm-hmm. um um operative processes that are you know, potentially some of the most painful experiences that anybody can have. Now, I I worked with him and taught him self-hypnosis and, um, you know, he still had drugs. He still had some drug intervention. Yet his reaction, his response when he used medication at slightly lower doses in combination with his self-hypnosis skills, you know, um, and, and, you know, he's less than 10 years old. Was just nothing short of striking, as far as I was concerned. You know, his his parents were just amazed, and so on. Mm. Um, so I, I certainly find those kind of things incredible. Um, my other my other sort of pet love has been, um, you know, some of my own work. Uh, certainly in line with with the work of of P the, my PhD supervisor, um, has been using self hypnosis and hypnosis to, um to inhibit the stroop effect. I don't know if you if if you or your listeners will be aware of what the stroop effect is, but um if you imagine sitting at a computer and and a stroop test were to come up. What you're asked to do is you're asked to 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 press the button on the keypad that corresponds with the color of the writing. Mm-hmm. So it it will be red, blue, yellow, black, for example. Um now, if the word red comes up, and the word is red it's very easy to press the red button you press it really really quickly if however the word blue comes up and it's in red writing your brain you read the word before you recognize the color and it, it creates a slowing down in the anterior cingulate within the brain and this is called the Stroop effect it makes you slower to respond one of the most important Things which shows that hypnosis is not compliance, for example, is that hypnosis has been proven to inhibit the Stroop effect. Um, and, and within my own PhD work, I'm, I'm the first person ever to have used self-hypnosis to inhibit the Stroop effect. And I just find that amazing,
0: you mm. know,
1: to watch it. Where someone comes in, they've worked, and, and you know they resp- their brain responds in a very particular way, then they give themselves suggestions for word blindness, i.e. I only recognise the colour, and within an hour they can inhibit the Stroop effect. Now, to me, that's rapid change, and, and I think that's amazing. It's incredible.
0: It's absolutely incredible, and, and that's the sort of stuff that I can imagine people listening to uh, at home when they're listening to this, when they're driving around, thinking to themselves, Really? Really? Yeah. I
1: mean, if you go and Google um, Amir Raz, mm-hmm.
0: um, R-A-Z,
1: as well as Dr. Ben Paris and the Stroop effect, S-T-R-O-O-P effect, uh, you will find a very impressive body of work, you know, randomised controlled trials um, uh, and and peer-reviewed research. On that subject, which just shows, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis. And it's, you know, very, very scientific, very important to the field of neuroscience as well. Um, yet, you know, the vast majority of the hypnosis field know nothing about it.
0: It's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, on a different note, whose methodology, whose uh, work would you say has had a big impact uh, on you? And would you recommend people reading more of or getting in- involved with?
1: Um, I think it's really important for anybody um, to go and, and become aware of the work of James Braid and see his work for what it actually was, you know. I mean, when we, was, we were speaking before we started recording, mm. um, you know, I, I teach cognitive behavioural approaches to hypnotherapy. So cognitive behavioural hypnotherapy. And most people think, oh, yeah, that's just hypnosis combined with CBT. And it's not. The cognitive behavioural hypnotherapy approach existed long before CBT was ever invented in the fifties. You know, James Braid was using methodologies very similar to habit reversal, very similar to systematic desensitization. You know, back in the 1800s, you know, almost almost a century before CBT had existed. And even Joseph Wolper, you know, the main pioneer of systematic desensitization, a cornerstone of CBT, for example, um, cites a lot of his um influence from a man called Wahlberg, who who was, who was a hypnotherapist and wrote about hypnotherapy in the 1940s. Um so I'd say that as far as you know turning my you know so James Braid um, and Hippolyte Bernheim, I think, is the second most important person in the field of hypnotherapy. Um Emile I have a I have a real fondness for, not just because you know, his auto-suggestion is very akin to self-hypnosis, and you know, his his cent- the central themes and laws are still that of his work are still very, very honest and and useful to to anybody becoming a self hypnotist today mm. um and, and and engaging in self hypnosis so i think that's really important and um beneficial i also think um uh, you know and, and emil coue as well one of the things that i love about him and the reason he's such a hero of mine is because you know he rejected the very popular Nancy school of hypnosis of the of the day back in the 1920s. He rejected that. He rejected hetero hypnosis because, you know, he believed and discovered that people could just reject suggestion. So, you know, it made sense to him to teach people how to give themselves suggestions and believe in it. You know, and, and thus he came up with auto suggestion. So, um, you know, I, 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 found, I found him to be very pioneering. Um I'd say um, that, that it's very, you know, it's worth familiarizing yourself um, with with the the work of Theodore Barber, the work of Irving Kirsch, and um, certainly Nic- Nicholas Spanos and his Colton Skills Training Program um, have been really important influences to me. Uh, I mentioned Donald Robertson earlier because, mm. um, uh, you know, he he really was the person that. that, that, that transformed the direction that I went in but he's not really involved in this field anymore which is a great shame um, you know, there's there's a number of academics that are doing really impressive stuff today. Certainly, a man called Graham Jamieson who wrote um, "Hypnosis and Conscious States." For anybody really wanting to get into the neuroscientific perspective of hypnosis, he's the man to to look at. You know, his edited works with a variety of contributors make for thoroughly stimulating and illuminating reading, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Absolutely great, uh, and. I know. Uh, obviously, you touched upon sort of uh, your initial uh, and visceral gut reaction when I approached you to to get involved with this uh, about you know is rapid change uh, you know a good thing. Well, I mean, uh, let, let's talk about this. What what what, what were your concerns? Um,
1: my concern um, is is that you know I I think people need to be grounded in reality, um, and that is you know a lot of fields a lot of sort of modern fields really promote this notion of one one stop so you know the field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy there is a proliferation massive of one stop smoking sessions you know one one session stop smoking um and so on yet yet evidence shows that more sessions are better for people in the longer term if you want to stop smoking in the long term um you know so I was thinking mainly and also there's a number of a number of concepts um, such as you know NLP's fast phobia cure which have been tested and you know the kind of results that are promoted by by therapists and NLP practitioners using it have have, have not been able to be replicated um, in in clinical conditions or in laboratory conditions and mm. um, you know they just can't and very often the reason that it's effective out there is because the practitioners believe in these processes so much that <clears throat> that belief and that congruence just spreads into the client but you know if, if if all you want your therapy work to be based upon is um is belief and co- your congruence in what you do then you know just buy a wet fish smack people across the head with it and say you know this you know be really sure that that person knows that you believe it's going to work. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think what my reticence with regards to that is, you know, to suggest to people that that in the first instance, that change will happen really quickly, you know, especially if they've not bought in and their belief system is not properly there in the first instance, mm. you run the risk of entrenching them in their problem, thinking that they're that they are a lost cause or that they're beyond help. You know, um there was there was a for a number of years in the nineties before advertising um agencies and and laws were 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 made, people used to say, you know, ninety-five percent success rate with smokers. And I can't help thinking, you know, that in reality, it's much closer to fifty percent. Um, And and in, in, you know, really stark reality, it's actually less than that. um, Hypnotherapy for stopping smoking, the the evidence would suggest anyway, regardless of what individual people say their clinical results are. um, um, The the real strong evidence for using hypnosis to stop smoking is no way near as impressive as people would imagine. Now, if you've been told there's a 95% success rate um, of, uh, you know, with, with this person, but in reality, it's 40% or 50%, for example. Now, if you then do not stop smoking and you think to yourself, oh, man, I'm one of the 5%. I'm a lost cause. In reality, you're one of the 50 or 60%, you know? In reality, where, but, but, but because you've positioned it, because you've said to somebody, this will happen rapidly in a one single session, mm. um, and if it doesn't happen for that person, for whatever reason, I think it's good to frame things positively. But you know, it's not good to 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 say that rapid is definitely going to happen. And and what's more what I would say is I still think 4 to 6 sessions is rapid. I think that's comparatively brief therapy to a lot of um old school
0: approaches. But but for for me this is important because um you know, I, I, I really want people to hear lots of different perspectives and lots of things that are going to challenge some people uh, and other people are going to be well on board with. But for me, you know, th- th- this podcast and uh, certainly all these conversations are designed to get people to to, to to question, to think, you know, where are they at with things and, you know, let, let's read a little wider. Um, listen, if people are interested in um, hearing more from you, uh, where should they go? How should they get in touch?
1: So my personal, you can contact me via my personal website, which is www.adam-eason.com. It's just adam-eason with a hyphen in the middle.com. Or my uh, my training college, the Anglo-European College of Hypnosis, which is just um, aecollegeofhypnosis.uk. And it is just .uk, not co.uk, okay? Uh, aecollegeofhypnosis.uk.
0: Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, what would we cover and what we talk about in relation to this topic um, you know you'd like to say no i think i think
1: i've probably pissed off enough of your listeners for the <laughs> podcast so uh, no, no problem um, um, no, no, no there isn't really you know i mean, I mean yeah. um, and people may have questions or or so on and maybe at a later date we come and discuss it in a different way
0: yeah no that's uh, absolutely brilliant and thank you so much it's been uh, an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, yeah hopefully look forward to a part two at some point
1: yeah, I would really like that. Thank you, Howard. It's been a real honour
0: being here. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus Those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works.